This is Lost or Found with Dr. Michelle Choi, the podcast where we think about what can be possible in our lives. The contents of this podcast and website are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition and before undertaking any diet, dietary supplement, exercise, or other health program. And now here's your host, Dr. Michelle Choi. Welcome to Lost or Found today as we discuss lifestyle with Dr. Nicole Harkin. This is one of the biggest ironies in the practice of medicine. There is very little focus on prevention. I know because I've been there. I know what it's like and what's not being done. I've worked in the hospital and over the last few years, I've worked in primary care. Think about your own experiences as a patient. A colonoscopy is considered preventative screening as well as a mammogram, ordering blood work, checking your cholesterol panel, and perhaps your hemoglobin A1c and checking a PSA level is considered preventative. Then there's a routine physical every year and perhaps the pap smear. When your blood pressure is checked and if it's elevated on two consecutive readings, your doctor may advise you to lose weight or exercise more. And if it's still elevated, it will be recommended that you start blood pressure medications. And sometimes before lifestyle changes are recommended, doctors recommend just starting the medication because they feel that change is not possible. But seriously, why don't we focus more on the change? Isn't that what true health is? Learning healthier habits to actually be healthy? Has anyone ever talked to you about how to lose the weight, what good nutrition is, or how to incorporate more exercise into your life? and why it's important? I know that in an office appointment, in reality, there is very little time. I think the amount of time that a patient has with a primary care doctor is a real joke, quite frankly. Your appointment starts when the medical assistant comes to get you, because a lot of times people are just on time or late. When your doctor is doing your physical and going through all the questions, there really is not that much time left to discuss anything else. Let's say you made a doctor's appointment for a particular issue that you're having. When was the last time a doctor asked you about other issues that may be going on in your life or really asking you about your life? If they're not asking you, it may largely be due to the fact that they don't have the time. While the doctor's appointment may be written as 15 minutes, in reality, The appointment is on average seven minutes. And I have a question for my listeners. Have you ever accomplished anything meaningful in your life in seven minutes? Seriously. Wow, even though it's been several months since I've quit my job, it still makes me mad. And you know I have to bring this up because I love potty talk. Sometimes taking care of bodily needs and going to the bathroom takes more than seven minutes. I think something that everyone should know is that there is a huge influence of the business of medicine on the practice of medicine. For example, instead of preventing someone with hypertension and high cholesterol from suffering a heart attack, wouldn't the common sense thing be to help someone from developing hypertension and high cholesterol in the first place? Isn't this real prevention? According to Dr. Michael Greger, The pandemic of chronic disease has been ascribed in part to the near-universal shift toward a diet dominated by animal source and processed foods. In other words, more meat, dairy, eggs, oils, soda, sugar, and refined grains. While we view heart disease, diabetes, cancer, obesity, some autoimmune diseases, depression, and other chronic illnesses as really different from each other, they share common origins and underlying biological causes. It's amazing to think simple lifestyle changes can have such a huge and powerful impact, but they do. You have so much more control over your health than you are believed to think. And it can help with a wide range of diverse chronic illnesses, 
And it's very unlikely that it's going to make you feel worse than you feel now. And back to my short point on, let's say, high blood pressure and high cholesterol. If one develops hypertension and high cholesterol and medications are started, it's assumed that these patients or you will be on these medications for the rest of your life. If people develop high blood pressure and high cholesterol, why isn't there more education to get patients off these medications to facilitate weight loss and better diet? And you know what? Sometimes a pamphlet or a piece of paper is just not enough for real and productive lifestyle changes. And this is a bit of information about the business of medicine for you. Heart attacks are the most expensive diagnosis. And you can also say that statement this way, heart attacks make the most money in healthcare. I thought it was interesting that Dr. Robert Pearl wrote an op-ed in the LA Times on May 16, 2021, called How Dr. Culture Sinks U.S. Healthcare. And he talks about how American healthcare suffers from bureaucratic issues. And he states, One obstacle is that insurers reimburse physicians too little for the time it takes to prevent disease. However, an equally large part of the problem is rooted in the priorities of physicians themselves. Preventing disease isn't as visibly heroic as life-saving intervention. It's undervalued even in terms of compensation, although multiple studies show that when healthcare providers place a high value on primary care, they reduce chronic disease by half compared with national averages. While I agree with what Dr. Pearl is saying, I can't help but also cringe. He was the chief executive of Kaiser Permanente Northern California for many years, and I can't help but feel he helped to facilitate this exact culture he is talking about. The priority is money, not care. Having been a primary care physician myself, I was salaried to work for my organization and see 25 patients a day. I didn't see 25 patients a day because I wanted to. I did it because I was told to. And when you have an average of seven minutes per patient, what is really possible? You go in to get out to see the next patient. I'm not even sure who told me to see 25 patients a day because I'm not sure who they are considering how large the corporation was. I was just a low-on-the-totem-pole doctor. I really feel badly for primary care doctors, to be honest with you. If you have a doctor that you don't really like, and hopefully there was no actual harm done, their life may suck real bad. Primary care doctors are like the Marines. They are the first line of defense in medicine. But as a primary care doctor in the U.S. right now, you are not even well-equipped with the resource called time to handle issues that could be handled at that moment. If someone is handling a new diagnosis, or if someone is sobbing, what could be possible if you were able to provide a humanly moment? So that's why when someone has high blood pressure, we talk more about, here's a pill, instead of, what are you eating? What can facilitate weight loss? What's your activity level? What's going on in your life? And how are you feeling? I really respect Dean Ornish and his work. Why? Because I know what's happening and not happening in clinical practice, having seen patients. I've come to understand the complexities and similarities of all of our lives. Dr. Dean Ornish is the president and founder of the nonprofit Preventative Medicine Research Institute, and he talks about how simple lifestyle changes can make such great improvements on your life. Simply speaking, he talks about a whole foods plant-based diet, low in animal protein, fat, sugar, and refined carbs as having a huge impact of the prevention and sometimes reversal of disease. Regular exercise, including walking, to help prevent and improve a wide variety of conditions just 30 minutes a day, whereas a sedentary lifestyle can significantly increase the risk of many chronic diseases. He talks about stress management, and as a side note, we are a stressed culture, such as yoga and meditation, that can improve our health, whereas sustained emotional stress increases the risk of numerous chronic diseases. And lastly, he brings up the power of love and intimacy in our lives 
how it keeps us healthy as he writes in his book, Undo It. People who are lonely and depressed are three to 10 times more likely to get sick and die prematurely from virtually all causes. I'm excited to begin our discussion on lifestyle medicine with Dr. Nicole Harkin today. I feel that on the podcast so far, we've talked a lot about stress and mental health, as I believe it's crucial to work out for our overall health. And in today's episode, we talk mostly about diet as part of the lifestyle, as it's a huge discussion, but the above factors also matter. Dr. Nicole Harkin is a preventative cardiologist, board certified in internal medicine, cardiology, echo, nuclear cardiology, and clinical lipidology. And just between you and me, that's a lot. She worked for five years in traditional private practice cardiology in New York City, She founded Whole Heart Cardiology, a preventative telecardiology practice that provides cardiac optimization through precision and lifestyle medicine. She is passionate about preventing heart disease through healthful, sustainable lifestyle changes. Hello, Dr. Nicole Harkin. Thank you so much for being here and welcome to Lost or Found. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation. Oh, I am too. And before we begin, can you tell us about yourself? Sure. So uh, my name is, as you said, Dr. Nicole Harkin. I am a board-certified cardiologist as well as a board-certified clinical lipidologist, which is a doctor that um, helps people with cholesterol disorders. Um, I finished fellowship about five years ago, so I'm about five years out of training. Um, I did all of my training on the the East Coast um, and was in private practice for a number of years out there as well. Uh, I recently relocated with my family to San Francisco, actually, over the over the summer in the middle of the pandemic. Um, I don't recommend it. <laughs> um, so I I am now a resident of San Francisco, California, and I'm loving it. Um, And then during that phase, decided to open my own uh, preventive uh, telecardiology practice. So I'm actually um, seeing patients over telemedicine um, in California, New York, and in Florida, helping them uh, prevent and treat heart disease. And I absolutely love it. Wonderful, because I think that's exactly what we need in this world. (laughs) It is. I love prevention. It's a really, um, you know, it's definitely an under-recognized and sort of poo-pooed upon. It's not as quite as exciting, if you will, as interventional cardiology where you put stents in and all of this other stuff, but it is the backbone of cardiology and it is vitally important. And it's, you know, increasingly being recognized as really a subspecialty in and of itself and something that um, needs to be focused on and and prioritized for sure. Totally. I mean, I think you bring up a really great point, prevention. Can I ask you, do you feel the way in which um, medical care is practiced in the U.S., are we doing enough to prevent heart disease? That is a great question. I mean, I think the answer is in the numbers, which would say no, because clearly it is still uh, the number one cause of death in both men and women um, across the globe and in the United States. So despite all of our fancy medications, um, which are life-saving, I mean, we have incredible medications that um, do wonderful things, but um, despite all of this, we still really haven't budged those, those numbers significantly in some time. Um, and in some segments of our population, the increase, um, there's actually increases in, in risk of death from heart disease lately. So, um, so I would say, I would say no. And I think that that's obviously very complex and multifactorial, um, but it has a lot to do with how the medical care system is set up. Um, and I'm sure we can get into that as well. It has a lot of limitations, which both you and I are well aware of, unfortunately. Um, and then just in terms of our priorities as, as a society, in terms of what foods get um, uh, subsidized, um, you know, we've got a lot of processed foods and things like that. Um, so so there's a, a lot of uh, public health things that need to be done. And then also things within the medical care system that need to be done to prioritize prevention as opposed to treatment once we're sick. Totally, because I think it's amazing that there's so many medications out there, life-saving procedures. But I think quality of life is really correlated with prevention, like not getting sick. Exactly. And so it's not enough to, um, you know, we don't want to just prolong life. So say, you know, I mean, yes, that's important as well, but we want to prolong 
quality, good life, right? Um, and so I think, and that's a great point as well. Um, you know, we don't always recognize the fact that there's this whole large group of people who suffer devastating heart attacks and devastating strokes. And while they might not pass away from them, which is good, they have um, long lasting consequences and the remainder of their life is not um, not at the quality at which they would like to live it. Um, And so uh, that is equally as important as well to prevent. Yeah. And I think having been a primary care doctor, I think the real truth is that, you know, medical care is not really focused on prevention. Like in a short 15 minute visit, which is really seven minutes, you treat hypertension when it happens. You don't prevent it. You Absolutely. Know? Absolutely. So think, and go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, no, no. I feel like so much could be more accomplished if we address it. But unfortunately, with the way medicine is structured, there's really no time to really have a discussion to go into like the crux of it, which I think is lifestyle. Absolutely. It's really, really challenging. Um, And many, um, you know, it's frustrating for both uh, medical providers, um, as well as patients alike. Um, And so just how, um, you know, the the ownership of who's in charge right now, it's not the doctor, and it's not the patient, and it should be those two people that are in charge of the medical care. And instead, it's it's other people with vastly different interests in mind. Um, And so you're exactly right. Uh, Specialists and primary care physicians have 10 minutes, which is actually just a couple of minutes once you take it into consideration the vitals from the MA and all this and the med rec checking and all these other quick boxes we have to do, um, then it's only a couple minutes left for really, you know, talking with your patient about what's going on. And that's not nearly enough time to get into um, just even simple, basic preventive measures, let alone a full dietary intake um, and troubleshooting and recommendations and things like that. Um, and, And then also, you know, sort of looking, diving deeper into other reasons things might be going on. Sleep, exercise. I mean, there's so many different lifestyle changes um, and things that can affect our heart health, blood pressure, cholesterol, all of these things. Um, And it's just, we're just not able to get that all done in the traditional medical model, which is just really sad. It is. You know, in preparation for this interview, I read Dean Ornish's book, Undo It. I don't think I'm ever going to approach or see life the same again. But may I ask you, do you feel that simple lifestyle changes can be powerful in reversing uh, and preventing coronary artery disease? I absolutely do. Um, so, you know, the estimates are that about 80% of coronary artery disease is preventable. What that means is that um, while genetics um, and things like age and things that we cannot change are important contributors to our heart health or, you know, all, all, our whole body health, um, you know, they um, in many cases are not the most important factor. Um, and actually, um, it's kind of quite empowering when you sort of turn around and view it as the fact that um, that many of us, even those of us with strong family histories, do have a potential ability to prevent heart disease. Um, and so I think uh, that's why it really behooves us to get this information out there about what are these changes that we can be making uh, to prevent heart disease. Yeah. And isn't the truth when someone says, oh, their genes may be bad, that's a predisposition. That's not a fate. And right. I think, yeah, and I think with lifestyle changes, you can really kind of put the control back in your court, you know, or the ball back in your court. Exactly. No, I think that's an excellent analogy. Um, yeah, it's it's one of those things that I, I certainly have lots of patients that will come to me um, and they are, um, you know, say they're in their 40s and their father had a heart attack at 50 um, and they're just, they're really almost... Uh, feel like that is their destiny or their fate. Um, And while it's true, again, I don't want to downplay the fact that genetics are important. We need to pay attention to them. Um, And there are some sort of genetic cholesterol disorders that dramatically increase our risk from a young age. And so it's important to identify those and and work on those from a young age as much as possible. So there's things like that that are quite important. Um, But all of that being said, we we do have data that shows us that even in people with um, a strong family history of heart disease. Um, You know, there was a really interesting study that looked at groups of people um, that had a strong family history and a high what's called polygenetic risk score. So meaning looking at their genes, they would have been, they were identified as high risk for having a heart attack based on their genes. And when they divided them into into groups based on their, um, their lifestyle habits, 
it showed that um, those who adhered to a healthy lifestyle, exercise, maintaining a normal body weight, eating lots of fruits and vegetables and plants actually had almost a 50% reduction in terms of their risk of, of heart disease. So, so there is that strong relationship between genes and environment, and we can influence the expression of those genes by what we do in our lives. I love that because even in like, I mean, there's some thought that like with basically all the cancers, you really need the right environment, the right micro environment, which is inflammation and stress. Yeah. So it's, I think we're really on the cusp of really still fully understanding how the, that complex interplay occurs. And it's going to obviously take a long time to fully sort out, but um, there's no doubt in my mind that there, that relationship exists. And while, um, you know, we can't prevent everything, we can prevent a lot of things. Um, and, and I love deli- being able to deliver that message to my patients. Um, yes, we need to remain vigilant. We need to check all of these things. Um, but there's lots of things that you can do in your daily life life to prevent um, having that same fate. Yeah, exactly. Like controlling that chronic inflammation that does not have to be your environment. Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I thought it was really interesting because Dean Ornish also writes, and he, to support your point as well, an unhealthy diet, especially high in animal protein, fat, and refined carbs, a sedentary lifestyle, chronic emotional stress, and social isolation each increase chronic inflammation. Whereas a healthy diet with moderate exercise, stress management, and love and intimacy each decrease inflammation. Yeah, that's right. Um, And I love that also Dr. Ornish does, um, and it's always been sort of a a large pillar of his program. Um, You know, healthy diet gets a lot of press as it should. It's, It's a really, really important modulator. But I do think we've long forgotten to discuss those other components that he discusses, um, which is the importance of community, sleep, stress, um, all of those other factors that we're really increasingly recognizing as major risk factors for coronary artery disease. I love that because I think in our society, like sometimes we try to find that one answer, that one key as like the major factor, but in actuality, it's kind of like the like the orchestra, you know, the medley, the interaction of multiple key factors. And I think focusing on diet is important, but also it's the other factors as well, like stress, moving more and feeling love and connection. Absolutely. And it can feel overwhelming too, because you're like, oh my gosh, I have to do all of these things. There's all these things to do. Um, so when I'm working with my patients, we do typically pick one thing and kind of focus there and and um, uh, and try to kind of take small baby steps to lead to sustainable change. So I also don't want people to feel overwhelmed that, oh my goodness, if I not all of these things are perfect, I'm going to get heart disease. But it is important to recognize that there's other little things to do. And so maybe you're not ready to make whole um, sale changes in your diet, but you can fit in 10 minutes of meditation before you go to bed. Okay, let's start there. It's ultimately the mindset that needs to change, like all of our mindset. Absolutely. And I think there's so much evidence for, there's so much scientific evidence for lifestyle changes. You know, with like the Mutual of Omaha Project, they indicated they found that 80% of people who needed bypass surgery or stent were able to avoid um, were able to avoid bypass by making profound life changes. Why do you think that, you know, if there's so much evidence for lifestyle changes with coronary artery disease and many chronic illnesses, that like more doctors or healthcare systems are not implementing this in their care? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, and I think it goes back to, a lot of it goes back to what we were discussing in the beginning, which is how our system is set up. Um, lifestyle changes, um, you know, writing a prescription, um, you know, while it's a misconception that, you know, doctors, doctors are in the pockets of, of pharmacy and whatever else. No, it's really just a function of the fact that, um, you know, one, not all patients are ready to make these major changes. It requires a lot of dedication and time and, and some guidance and, And unfortunately, most medical providers, either one, don't have the education or the knowledge, and two, just simply do not have the time um, to to discuss these things, problem solve, troubleshoot, um, and and really help them along the way. Um, And so unfortunately, the default does become, you know, writing a prescription, which is that much quicker and easier um, for for the provider. Um, Waiting for the problem to happen, right? 
Right, exactly. As opposed to kind of really starting from the beginning. And so, um, so I think it, it will require a really um, different model of care um, to be able to fully address these problems. I mean, so in my practice, for instance, I've, um, it is a, not an insurance-based practice, and I'm able to spend then the 60 plus minutes with my patients um, to, to really get into all of the weeds with them about all of these things. And then, you know, it's a sort of a conversation, okay, where do we want to start? What are we going to do now? And you kind of create that plan together. But that takes a lot of time. It just does. Um, and then I I think secondly, as I, I alluded to, education is, a, is another big one. I think in, um, as you probably can attest to as well, we learn a ton in medical school. We learn a ton in training, residency and fellowship. Um, but historically, you know, we focus on treating people once they're really ill. And, and that's complex and complicated and hard work. And it requires a lot of attention. And so unfortunately, that's where the bulk of our education goes. Um, I actually did a survey as part of my, my fellowship uh, research project looking, asking questions of um, internal medicine um, uh, physician attendings, as well as residents, and then cardiology fellows and re- and uh, attendings, asking them about different nutritional questions and and their comfort level. Um, and and their new knowledge isn't quite as bad as they perceive it to be, <laughs> but they don't feel confident. In, in sort of giving that guidance, um, and nor do they feel like they, they have the time. And they almost all uniformly said they really wished that they could have more confidence in delivering this guidance and, and having the time. Um, and, and then I think thirdly, it really does need to be a team-based approach. Um, so I think, you know, incorporating more registered dietitians and other, um, you know, knowledgeable providers into the care team is critical. And unfortunately, those are just um, not supported as well. And, and just it's not, it, it's becoming, I think, a little bit more common, but um, it's not common enough. Um, and so I think being able to kind of use a team-based approach, um, it could be quite helpful for patients as well. I love that. And you bring up some um, really key points. I think the truth is in our doc- in our education as doctors, our education with for like nutrition and exercise is really minimal to no- nothing. I think we only find out later in our lives if we didn't find out like at that moment. And the other, 100%. yeah. And I think that's why we feel uncomfortable. And then the other issue is that we don't have time to talk about it. You know, what do you feel are the motivating factors for your patients to actually make the lifestyle changes? Is it the social connection that you can provide for them? Yeah, I think that it, um, people seek me out for, for different reasons. Um, I think that, um, Within the cardiology community, even though our guidelines clearly state um, that, except in very specific circumstances, lifestyle changes are the number one thing that should be done for high blood pressure or high cholesterol um, prior or, or um, you know, pre-diabetes and things like that prior to instituting medications. Um, and, and they really spell out, you know, what to do. Um, it's again, going back to kind of knowledge and time and things like that. It just doesn't, um, it doesn't end up uh, being within the, the, as common of a thing. And so unfortunately, a lot of my patients come to me saying um, that their doctor told them their cholesterol was high and to eat healthier. And that was kind of the extent of it. <laughs> and so, and what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> right? like, uh, okay, I get that. And, you know, most patients have a sense of what healthier means, but they really need someone to work with them to create that plan and figure out what that is. Um, and then I also do a lot of sort of deeper dive risk stratification, um, which I think is helpful for a lot of, um, patients who are motivated to make changes. Um, and, and because of say family history, um, a, a lot of providers will, the, you know, people will come to me saying, you know, I was told to just like lead a good lifestyle because my dad had a heart attack at 50, but like, that's not good enough for me. I want to really a deep dive into my personal risk and what should I specifically be doing to modify my risk. And so, you know, looking at different, um, you know, inflammation, as you were talking about, you know, even now people still don't, you know, even though it's in our guidelines as a risk modifying feature, um, people don't check that, um, or LP little error. There's all these other things that can modify one's risk. Um, so I do a deep dive into sort of those other things and then create kind of a more personalized plan, which is what people are really craving. Um, you know, it's 2021, it's time, you know, it's 2021, it's time to like 
you know, really give people more personalized guidance as opposed to um, generalized information that they can look up on Google. Yeah, I think I think with like 2021, there is so much information out there. But sometimes when there's so much information, it could be like really overwhelming. And in the end, there's like no information. But I think the real fundamental way is really to be there with that person to go through it slowly or at their own pace and, you know, discuss it. And that's another excellent point. I think that people certainly get overwhelmed with all of the information and misinformation out there. Um, you know, if you, at this day and age, if you say it loud enough and say it enough times, it suddenly becomes true. So, um, so people get really confused, you know, is keto really healthy or unhealthy? I don't even know anymore, you know? And so, so there's a lot of, of agendas out there and things like that. And so I think that's the other thing patients appreciate coming to a trusted source of information. Um, and so, you know, as physicians, it really behooves Proves us to make sure we understand this stuff because your patients are going to come to question, come with you to you with questions about this stuff. And so you need to know about keto. What does the science show? Because we do have some science. You need to know about, you know, calcium supplements or fish oil supplements because your patients are going to want to know. And so I think it's really important that us as physicians make sure that we can become that trusted source. Um, and if we haven't learned it in residency or fellowship, um, then, you know, it's not that we ha all have tons of time, but, but it is important that we do some self-study and, and dive into the literature a little bit and see what it says. Or really to live it. Because how much more can we help our patients if we actually live it and know it? Like, and actually to know what a healthy lifestyle is. And, you know, I feel like in the limited time that there is in, in the primary care setting, you know, I feel like your, your clinical setting seems really ideal. The fact that you have time to talk with your patients. Because I think in corporate medicine, the truth is it's almost like fear-based, you know, and fear-based information doesn't really last, go too far for like productive change. Exactly. So there's lots of data on sort of what's the most effective forms of behavior change. And it's absolutely not, you know, that's why like the commercials of the lung cancer smokers, like they don't actually work well because fear-based advertising or information um, just doesn't end up being effective in the long term. It's all about kind of meeting patients where they're at and creating things called SMART goals, which are, um, are, are really small, achievable goals that are very specific and um, are created together um, with the provider and the, the patient um, that are, um, you know, time specific, um, you know, not just I'm going to start eating healthier because that doesn't do anyone any good. It's I'm going to instead of eating my egg McMuffin in the mornings, which I do every morning, I'm going to switch it to oatmeal three times a week with flaxseed cheese, you know, that kind of thing. Very specific. And I'm going to do that for the next three weeks until I next see Dr. Harkin next. And then we work on the next thing. So um, so creating those um, small like achievable goals for sustainable change works much better than just saying you're going to have a heart attack if you don't start eating healthy. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I didn't go into the land of denial, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, and it's really abstract, right? So, um, and that's the other thing that I think a lot of this sort of more personalized guidance um, gives people is, you know, again, most people know, you know, generally kind of what's healthy or what's not healthy. And generally that eating too much processed foods is not good for them. And generally that they could end up with heart disease because of it. But it's a totally different thing to really get more granular with people and kind of specifically say, this is your specific cholesterol level. This is what happens if it stays this high over time. This is what we're seeing your inflammation or your glucose numbers or your coronary calcification score. Look, there's a little bit of plaque already in your arteries. You know, that kind of information is really helpful to people to sort of see no longer to take it from the abstract form and really bring it towards the sort of personalized, oh, like this is what's happening now, you know, let, let's make some changes. Yeah. And sometimes I wonder with our lives being so busy in 2021 and the, the age of technology, maybe that's not a good thing because we go out for like the reachable, like processed foods, which are readily available. And I think we really need to stop and think like maybe that really is not healthy, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I think the convenience foods right now are one of our biggest 
um, threats to our health, certainly. Um, and I think um, sort of really, re- and that's what I was sort of referring to with kind of public health measures in terms of what we're supporting and subsidizing. And um, uh, it's definitely something that as a society, we need to, to make sure that um, we're prioritizing you know, the healthful foods like fruits and vegetables and whole grains, you know, why aren't those subsidized, Um, you know, as opposed to the things that then go into just like our processed foods. Um, You know, not to say that those are, none of those can be healthful or anything like that, but but unfortunately they make up the bulk of our diet in America. um, And we really need to sort of as a community work together to figure out how we can reprioritize things and make those types of foods more accessible. Love that. And can I ask you, considering the fact that the American diet is really high in animal protein, how bad is animal protein for us? Yeah. So, you know, I think we've got a wealth of data that at this point, um, large quantities of animal protein are not good for our heart health. Um, And that comes down to lots of different factors that were are well-established, things like saturated fat, um, as well as um, sort of things that we're learning more and more about that may also be contributing to iron, um, you know, uh, TMAO, all these other compounds that are also in meat or formed in our bodies once we consume them, um, that may lead to adverse outcomes. Um, and so it's not to say, so, so we definitely have a wealth of data that says that we should all be consuming less of them. Um, you know, I certainly work with my patients where they're at. Um, I think that a plant predominant or plant-based diet is a reasonable approach. Um, and so I think there's many ways to go about eating that. Um, but the bulk of our diet really should be fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, and seeds. I was really shocked to also read like a single meal high in animal protein and fat can significantly decrease like the blood flow to like the heart and the brain. I mean, that's shocking. Yeah, we've definitely done. So they've done some vasoreactive type studies where they look at um, how um, how the blood vessel reacts to um, to ingestion of these foods. And and it's really true that in in the short term, we do see some vasoconstriction and um, inflammation. And it's actually <laughs> I, I have a true story with my husband who actually is not plant based. Um, he's, I guess, a flexitarian at this point, if you will. <laughs> and we went for a run together and it was I think he had had kind of a a big fattier meal, like two hours prior, one hour prior, maybe. And he was just like, I feel like I just can't like get enough blood to my body. Like I can't move. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was just completely anecdote and totally ridiculous. But, um, but yeah, we do, we do definitely see kind of those shorter term effects as well. Um, and more mechanistic um, reasons as to why some of these foods, um, can be less helpful. Yeah, that's a really great example that you bring up because even like, um, I guess, like high level athletes are, you know, aren't they approaching more of like a plant based whole foods kind of like diet regimen as well to, to improve performance? Many are. Yeah. So there's a lot of really, there's a lot of interesting performance um, sort of enhancement um, data that's coming out about sort of more plant-based and plant-predominant diets. Um, And certainly there's a myth in our community at large that you can't get enough protein from plants alone. And so, um, so it's a, a, you know, a was typically previously thought to be a poor choice for um, for athletes, particularly the ones that required a lot of muscle hypertrophy or strength. Um, and um, and the, there's great examples of, of that at this point, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger and all these other guys who are completely um, plant-based and have um, certainly have the physique that one would say is, you know, has plenty of muscle. Um, and, and then there's, you know, endurance athletes too, cyclists and things like that. Um, so I think, you know, just like any diet, you have to be mindful of how you are putting it together to um, make sure you're meeting all of your nutritional needs. Um, but that's not unique to plant-based eating. Um, you know, all of us need to be paying a little bit more attention to, I, you know, I'm willing to bet that many omnivores, um, while they're probably getting adequate numbers of protein, um, they're probably not getting enough of some of the other um, vitamins, minerals, and, and uh, micronutrients that are required as well. Interesting. You know, I was like really, really shocked to read that 80% of like the antibiotics that are produced go to our animals. Like how sick is that? Yeah. What are we ingesting then? 
Yeah. So, so that's the other concern about, um, you know, sort of what were um, that, that kind of animal agriculture as a whole, right? So not only are there environmental concerns um, and obviously animal welfare concerns, but then also things like antibiotic usage, which, um, you know, we as a community right now, we're focused on um, this current pandemic, but, uh, you know, the infectious disease community at large has been long focused on um, drug resistant bacteria. Um, And that's unfortunately largely a potentially a result of this usage within livestock. Um, And because of the conditions that they are kept in, um, it's sort of ripe for infectious disease, unfortunately, you know, close quarters, um, feces, and things like that. And so they're prophylactically given antibiotics. um, And so, um, so as a result, much of the antibiotic usage is in these, um, these populations as opposed to humans. Um, And so I think if they're in terms of infectious disease concerns from drug resistant bacteria, that would certainly be one of them. Yeah. And I mean, MDROs are rising, you know, (laughs) Absolutely. Like resistant organisms. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Can I ask you, I was kind of wondering about this. So if animal protein is kind of not the best, you know, how is wild fish? Yeah. So I think that's a really common question that comes up. Um, So setting aside sort of the environmental impacts, which are are real, you know, our oceans are definitely being um, uh, uh, fished quite a bit. Um, if you look at um, some of these different ep- epidemiologic studies and observational studies, um, looking at the types of, of protein people consume, um, in general, the fish does come out um, as improved um, when compared to some of the other kind of red meat, certainly poultry, things like that. So um, in my patients who do want to continue to consume animal products, um, fish is probably one of the ones that we we do keep in. Um, uh, But just being mindful of the fact that um, there are sort of environmental concerns and things like that. Um, so, um, and that's included in kind of more of a Mediterranean style plant predominant mm-hmm. eating pattern. And how is like organic, um, organic raised meats? Is there any difference? Yeah. So um, I think the organic meat question is, is an interesting one. Um, you know, I think a lot of the concerns that I have as a cardiologist about meat um, in terms of saturated fat and all of those things, um, organic or not, doesn't change things. Um, In terms of potentially how the animal's been treated, um, potentially less antibiotics you're consuming, you know, some of those other concerns may be be better or improved. Um, But from a heart health standpoint, um, I, I don't think that they're necessarily much better. And I'd rather focus on, um, you know, just switching to plant-based sources of protein um, on occasion. And again, it definitely does not have to be an all or nothing. I have a lot of people who come to me um, wanting to make kind of smaller changes and we work on those together. Um, And I often find that it's easier to kind of pick small things to swap out. um, Also kind of crowding out kind of some of the meat sources, like flipping the protein. So instead of a massive steak, you know, you have a much smaller piece of protein and animal protein, and then a lot of fruits and vegetables. So it becomes less of the sort of main dish entree and kind of a side, instead it's more of a sideshow. Do you feel that lifestyle medicine is better than angioplasties and stents in treating patients with stable coronary artery disease? So that's a great question. Um, so in so just for your listeners to make sure we're defining things appropriately. So stable coronary artery disease means that individuals have blockages in their arteries, um, but their symptoms are not um, new or crescendoing, meaning they're not their disease isn't um, sending out red flags that they're potentially unstable in in some way. So that's very different. Um, People who are having heart attacks, um, people who are having unstable coronary disease, um, you know, the science clearly shows that we need to acutely open up that artery so that it doesn't cause massive damage to the heart with a stent. So setting that aside and focusing just on people who have run-of-the-mill stable disease, nothing that's kind of concerning me acutely, 
we actually have a lot of great data at this point that, um, so the ischemia trial, um, and more historically the courage trial, where we look at, um, we randomize groups of, of patients with um, stable coronary disease to receive either interventions like stents or bypass surgeries, or they receive um, kind of standard goal-directed medical therapy along with lifestyle changes. Um, and see sort of who performs better. Um, and in more recently in the ischemia study, we actually looked at patients who had really large, decent amounts of, we called it moderate amounts, but it, you know, we, as a cardiologist looking at these studies, you're like, okay, that's a lot of ischemia. Meaning that these weren't just like people who had like a tiny little bits of a plaque. These were people who had large territories, moderate sized territories at risk um, and uh, no left main disease of note, that's really important. So the patients that um, have a blockage in the very top part of their main artery, those patients were excluded, but everybody else was included. Um, and the patients who had medications and lifestyle actually did just as well as the patients who had an intervention. Um, there's some subtle differences in timing and things like that, but overall, um, uh, they, they performed well. Um, so I think certainly the medical community is at large is moving away from this idea that you need to put stents in blockages when you see them um, uh, for, for sort of improving a patient's chance of survival. Um, so it's a more about kind of quality of life. So if a patient isn't responding to medications and lifestyle and still has limiting symptoms, then that's a good reason to put a stent in and open it up. But in terms of just doing it to, because you think it's going to make them live longer, um, uh, is, is unnecessary except in you know, certain situations, obviously. Um, and I think that that's a really, a really powerful and really important, um, difference. Um, and that really kind of leads me into the point that um, coronary artery disease is a systemic disease by and large, right? So so just because we see um, a big blockage in one of the arteries, um, there's likely lots of little blockages all over and subclinical disease. And there's probably blockages or subclinical disease in other arteries of the body. And so it's really important that we address the root cause and not just kind of put a Band-Aid on that one blockage. Again, this is the, you know, there, there are certain situations in which we need to do that to save portions of the heart muscle. Um, but, um, but for kind of the routine stable people, we can really use these medications and lifestyle to, um, to improve symptoms and um, to uh, increase their chance of survival. Yeah, because isn't that like scientifically proven that lifestyle changes can really reverse and even continue to prevent coronary artery disease or heart disease? So when you say reverse, um, it's a little bit controversial in the sense that so when when people are referring to reversal of heart disease, many times they're saying um, that they like can see the plaque go away. Um, we don't have enough um, uh, data at this point in large enough populations that's randomized to say that that definitively occurs. What we do have is data that shows in, say, something like PrediMed, whereas if you randomize people to a um, good heart-healthy diet, you can reduce their risk of having a heart attack or stroke or death from heart disease by, you know, large percent, 30, 40%, right? So, and that's what matters ultimately. As a cardiologist, I don't care if your plaque is 20% or 30%, as long as it doesn't do anything, then we're good, right? So, so more importantly to me is outcome data in terms of are these people having less heart attacks, less strokes, um, less likely to die from their heart disease? And the answer is yes. Do you feel like uh, patients who have had, have had heart attacks or stents placed, are they getting enough like adequate handholding after to kind of help with the lifestyle changes? That's a really good, really great question. Um, and I think that that is where as a community, we definitely need to do better. Um, so patients who've had heart attacks, have stents, have had bypass surgery, they are among our highest risk patients for having a recurrent event. And it certainly um, is on us to make sure that they're feeling supported in their journeys. And so it varies widely, I think, from hospital to hospital. Um, I have many patients who feel very, very supported um, and are get, get plugged into sort of a heart 
work health team that includes an RD, includes, um, you know, rehab. Rehab's a great one where people really feel like they get a decent amount of nutritional information and a, a supervised exercise program. That's huge. Um, and again, data supports that that is, um, is life-saving. Um, and reduces risks of, of events. Um, uh, so I think it just varies widely. And then other patients who were never told about cardiac rehab and, um, you know, just were told to take their medications and, and, and nutrition wasn't addressed at all. Um, so we definitely need to do better about um, sort of standardizing that program about once a patient's had an event, what needs to happen. Yeah, because I think the ultimate truth, isn't the ultimate truth stents don't prevent bypass surgery? Like we have to do the work to prevent getting to that point. Yeah, exactly. And that's sort of where where things are going. I mean, certainly, you know, stents were a major advancement when it comes to abruptly needing to open up an artery. And so they are they are life-saving in that setting. And I don't want to downplay that at all. Um, but I think when you're, you're talking about trying to prevent further events, um, you know, really focusing on uh, the, the medications, um, as well as the, this lifestyle changes that are incredibly important to help us bring down our cholesterol, help us bring down our blood pressure, help us bring down our inflammation. And because again, it's a, it's a systemic issue. And so it's not necessarily going to be that bigger blockage that you see, it could be a different blockage. And so mm-hmm. you, focusing on, on things like medications and lifestyle that help, um, bring down all these things systemically, um, it can, is, is really, really effective. I thought it was also interesting that, you know, women who reduce their dietary fat intake to only 20% or 33 grams of fat per day, decrease their breast cancer recurrence by 42% after five years. It's really remarkable. Yeah, it's kind of cool that, and this is reflective in sort of guidelines from different Mm -hmm. organizations, um, you know, the Cancer Society, all these different organizations, it's a really similar diet that that comes out and that emerges from the literature is this plant predominant or plant based diet. And so, you know, it's really um, pretty cool that um, the same diet uh, prevents heart disease, that um, reduces your risk of cancer, that reduces your risk of dementia and Alzheimer's, you know, so it's, and and a lot of that comes down to sort of similar um, kind of pathologic um, uh, beginnings. And, um, and so, so it's great um, that all of these lifestyle changes that we're making um, are, are good for our hearts and our brains and the rest of our organs. Do you think fat is inflammatory? Like, like, adipose, like actually adipose. Oh, the, high fat no, diet. High fat diet, yeah. Uh, so I was like, adipose <laughs> on your body? Actually, yes. No. Um, so, yeah, I think that it depends. I think it's really dependent on where it comes from. Um, so I think that um, certainly plant-based diets, there's a lot of data showing reduced um, inflammation and a lot of plants are really good at reducing inflammation. They've got tons of antioxidants and all of this good stuff. Um, and I think that our body definitely responds differently to saturated fat versus monounsaturated, polyunsaturated. We could do a whole nother podcast about this if you want to do. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so, um, I, uh, I tend to not restrict, um, poly and monounsaturated, um, predominant foods, um, in my patients, things like avocados and, and nuts and seeds and things like that. Um, as it's, those have really been shown that when you swap um, those in for saturated fat, like butter and animal products and things like that, you get re- reductions, um, in cardiovascular endpoints. And so, um, so fat, kind of like carbs, um, is sort of an all encompassing term and, um, and it's different fats or different carbs within a group behave differently. And it's the refined carbs that are really bad, like sugar, white rice, white flour kind of thing, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, right. Exactly. So, um, so, so sugar in whole fruits that come with all of the vitamins and minerals and fiber, um, you know, in every, I think, epidemiologic study that's ever been looked at, um, people that consume, you know, good quantities of fruit do really, really well, um, in terms of all cause mortality, um, and lots of other events. So, so carbs are very different depending on where they're coming from. So it's really the processed carbs that have been stripped typically of their fiber and a lot of their minerals and nutrients that are not so good for us. I'm kind of like dying to ask you this question, but I'm not sure. (laughs) Let's see. What do you think of a low carb, high protein diet? And I mean, high animal protein diet. Yeah. So I do have a lot of patients um, that, so like a kind of a keto 
lifestyle diet, or I guess less or keto Atkins, more protein yeah, or, or paleo. Mm-hmm. Right, 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 right. So, um, so I do have patients who come to me um, on those diets. Um, we have a decent amount of head-to-head literature at this point um, showing that for the most part, um, uh, ketogenic style diets, high saturated fat style diets um, are not good for our, our health. Um, and again, they tend to be because they're high in animal products, they tend to have a lot of saturated fat, um, and are fairly devoid in fiber, um, and a lot of the other like antioxidants and minerals and things that we need. Um, so, uh, so for most, and I know a lot of my patients will come to me on that, um, because they're wanting to use it for weight loss. Um, and so, so you know, obviously doing it for a couple of months in the grand scheme of your whole life at the age of 30 or something, you know, um, is very different than someone who's pursuing this as a long-term strategy um, throughout their whole life who has risk factors for heart disease. Um, so again, I think this is where it comes down to an individualized approach. Um, but for the general population, I definitely would not advise them um, to, to pursue that strategy as like a long-term um, nutritional pattern. Um, I do have, there are ways that if um, someone is really, really adamant about pursuing that type of a strategy, there are is to make it slightly more healthful, um, which is less animal products and more plant-based fats and proteins. So um, really focusing on um, from, from the fats, as I said, the avocados and the nuts and seeds like that. It's t- If you're trying to do a really high protein, um, it would be tough to do that without um, kind of a lot of plant uh, protein powders and things like that. Um, so there's ways to tweak it, but then it comes becomes does become quite restrictive. Um, So for me, I try to work with my patients on kind of getting less animal products and more of the plant-based products. And then, um, and then also trying to, I I think the big takeaways from that diet is cutting out all the processed stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and that I think is why a lot of people, you know, it's a lot of water weight, but then also it's the restriction of all these processed and packaged foods that leads to a lot of weight loss. And so I think you can take that um, sort of leanings and lessons and apply that um, and then and keep that part to it, but then slowly reintroduce some of the more healthful plant-based foods. Um, and a lot of my patients have, have had a lot of success with that. I thought it was kind of funny because in, in the book, Undo It, Dean Ornish describes those diets as mortgaging your health for weight loss. <laughs> That's actually an interesting way of putting it. Um, and, um, and you know, again, we don't have long-term randomized controlled trials, but we have a lot of observational literature and some short-term randomized controlled trials. Um, and, um, and yes, all signs point towards um, it can um, reduce, result in some weight loss. Um, again, a lot of that's water weight. Um but but it is not kind of a long, good long-term strategy for all the other reasons we've talked about. Um, so I think there's ways to kind of, um, once people have done it for, say, a couple of weeks or a couple of months and maybe lost some weight and they're kind of happy with where they are, there's ways to kind of reintroduce and tweak it so that it becomes a more healthful, sustainable mm-hmm. uh, sort of nutritional pattern um, going forward. Yeah. And people may not know this. I mean, they think with like the idea of a low carb, high fat, high protein diet, um, that, you know, that their insulin, you know, because there's those sugared minimum sugar intake that their insulin may not be challenged. But the truth is fat can also promote increased insulin, right? Yeah. So, um, so there's actually a lot of really great data out there about, um, plant-based and plant predominant diets, um, leading to reversal of diabetes and insulin resistance and all of these things. And so there's a lot of misinformation that it's just the sugar that's the problem. Um, and so, you know, we, we see great results in patients who cut out the refined carbs, um, but keep in sort of the whole foods that have sugar in them, like fruits and things like that. Um, and again, it can be patient to patient um, dependent. Um, that's where things like CGM monitors can be really helpful in people with diabetes or prediabetes, which is kind of measuring continuously their glucose and figuring out individually what um, what affects, um, what types of foods affect some patients more than others. Um, so that's, again, where kind of a more personalized approach comes in. But on a population-wide um, basis, um, you know, things that are quote unquote higher in sugar, like uh, whole grains and fruits um, can, can lead to um, diabetes reversal. 
Wonderful. And I thought this was like really staggering. You know, there's a study over 6,000, there's a study over 6,000 people, people ages from 50 to 65, uh, who reported eating diets high in animal protein. And I think this pretty much sums it up. So those who reported eating um, a diet high in animal protein, 75, there's a 75% increase in overall mortality, 400% increase in cancer deaths, 500% increase in type 2 diabetes during the following 18 years. It's it's shocking. So yeah, so that's one of many randomized or one of many observational studies that we do have that does show um, that there's these associations between people that eat large quantities of animal-based um, products and increased risk of, of death and heart disease and, and such. Um, and so, you know, I really do feel for people that are searching for ways to um, to lose weight or do things that they think are are good for their for their bodies. And you know, it's quite. Um, it's quite appealing, right? You know, the butter is back and like all these other sort of like, um, uh, you know, quick type fixes or things that we find delicious that are now supposedly good for us. Um, it's really appealing. Um, and so, and people have, you know, previously tried all other, all other methods of trying to lose weight and haven't been successful. Um, and so, so I do understand where sort of trying something radically different sounds appealing. Um, but you know, I think that it's unfortunate because, um, we have definitely enough data to show that, that in the long term, um, these aren't going to be the, the best choices for our bodies. And it's really ultimately comes down to, I think, what kind of life do you imagine for yourself? I mean, having been a hospitalist at 80 or 90 years old, it can be really scary. And I think these are preventable illnesses, chronic, you know, diseases. And if we can kind of be more better advocates for ourselves, I think the ball is in our court then. Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's ways to do, I mean, and the other thing I think that's such a misperception um, is that plant-based or plant-forward or plant-predominant eating is boring and you can't have the foods you want. But it's, um, one, it's all about kind of making small um, changes um, and, and little substitutions. Um, there's so many spices and garlic and delicious flavorings that you can use. And it's not, it doesn't have to be an all-or-nothing approach. Um, you know, again, I have plenty of patients who are are completely whole food, plant-based, no oil, no salt, and that works great for them. I have other patients who eat, you know, 90% plants and a little bit of, you know, meat every now and then, you know, so, and, and then some people that are, are in a completely different place in their journey, you know, and so it, it's, it's definitely not an all or nothing approach. And I, I don't want people walking away from this thinking that, well, I'm never going to go all plant-based. So what's the point? It's all, anyone can eat more, more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, and seeds, not just plant-based eaters. Um, and I think that's the first important step um, and figuring out kind of where, where that works um, for you and your body and your family and your journey. And may I ask you, how bad is stress for us? Stress? <laughs> yeah. So, um, so the literature there is interesting. Again, um, you know, we don't have any randomized controlled trials here, which is kind of the gold standard of, of uh, um, research. But we do have a plenty of observational data that sh that chronic stress. You know, for a long time, the literature really focused on sort of short-term stress um, events, like um, you know, something really traumatic happening and PTSD and something like that. And so we recognize that those events, um, adverse childhood outcome things like. Like that we we recognize that some of these short bursts of stress were bad for us, um, but the but the literature does suggest that sort of chronic stress, whether it's financial or relationship um, or any other cause, um, does people that have chronic stress um, for for long periods of time do have increased risk of heart disease. And you know, there's there's mechanistic data to suggest that that it's it, there's direct causes of stress. You know, it increases our our flight or flight response. Um, so our levels of catecholamines um, and uh, are up a long period of time. So you're always with adrenaline. And what those substances do in our body is increase our blood pressure, increase our heart rate. Um, you know, we have more cortisol, which leads to inflammation, and that's our stress response. So, so physiologically, there's 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 reasons as to why it might lead to increased risk of heart disease. But then also, um, sort of indirectly, when we're stressed out. Um, and probably anyone listening can, can kind of, you know, a 
say that this probably has happened to them as well. I know personally, you know, when you're stressed out, you're just less likely to make healthful choices. Um, It's harder to do so. Um, And you're seeking kind of the comfort foods or you're just don't feel like going for a run or whatever it is. And so it's probably a combination of both of those things um, that when we're stressed out, um, both, both, sort of indirect and direct um, reasons as to why we see increased risk of heart disease. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Dr. Hargan. You're such a wealth of knowledge. It was really enjoyable to speak with you today. I had such a good time chatting with you and I hope we do it again soon. See you next time on another edition of Lost or Found. Are you looking for a unique perspective to help you gain insight into your health and well-being? Schedule a virtual wellness visit with Dr. Michelle Choi by going to our website, drlostorfound.com, to schedule an appointment. Please subscribe and follow Dr. Michelle Choi on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube.